you're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR Radio Melbourne on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Today's show is brought to you by Emma Crunch. And today we're travelling west to the country of the Wajak Noongar people in Western Australia and hearing about the contested Row 8 Mega Highway, which is the proposed heavy haulage route intended to get freight to Fremantle Port. West Australian Premier Colin Barnett claims that the highway would reduce congestion in Perth's southern suburbs, but multiple affected councils, local community and traditional owners of the areas to be affected by Row 8, which includes the culturally and environmentally significant Belia wetlands, argue that the plan is short-sighted and destructive. We'll get the download from campaigner Raymond Grenfell of Rethink the Link. And later in the show, we'll turn to the global stage and hear from Tim Wright of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons about the UN resolution recently passed to begin negotiating a treaty for the elimination of nuclear weapons. First, though, let's tune into my discussion with Raymond about what's been dubbed the Perth Freight Link, or Row 8. Ray, recently there's been a bit of media and attention around protests at Row 8, which I understand is a planned toll road. Could you just give listeners a bit of a background to this whole um, campaign and what's been going on to bring it to this point? Yeah, sure. So I guess the Row 8 extension is a part of the Perth Freight Link, what's the state government's pretty recent plans to extend Row 8 through the outer suburbs of Fremantle to the Fremantle port, the inner mm-hmm. port we have here. Uh, it's a pretty, as I said, it's a very recent plan. Like prior to 2014, both the LNP and the ALP were supporting other freight solutions, including building an outer harbour here, uh, Latitude 32, what's a container storage hub, uh, and other, I guess, much more... Um, not entirely unproblematic, but much more uh, sensible freight solutions. Mm. Uh, but in 2014, uh, Barnett actually went into a meeting with Tony Abbott to discuss uh, funding for his planned light rail network. Well, it was actually a light rail network he'd stolen from the Greens, but anyway. Mm. He went into this meeting and ostensibly Abbott told Barnett that the federal government were only funding road infrastructure. And so right. out of this meeting, um, less than an hour later, Barnett came out with this plan for the Perth Freight Link what is ostensibly a kind of rehashing of an old project from the 1950s and 60s here in Perth, the uh, Fremantle Eastern Bypass, incredibly archaic project that is basically cutting a road right through uh, the middle of the Fremantle, uh, sort of outer suburbs and inner suburbs. So at this stage, uh, they don't have any planning or engineering for the entire project. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've kind of got a loose, a loose plan for the first stage of the project, what is uh, currently what they're trying to push through before the election, and that includes uh, demolishing uh, the, the Belia wetlands and the Kubala Banksia woodlands, sort of some of the last remnant wetlands and woodlands in the metro area, mm. as well as, you know, I guess destroying uh, a whole bunch of public space and open space and, you know, putting this massive six-lane highway, what I should say is uh, estimated at costing $1.9 billion, will be mm. the most expensive road in Western Australia's history. Uh, you know, and they've only got the first stage of it. There's also, um, I guess, a whole bunch of issues, including that it's uh, estimated that if the road did go through to the Fremantle port, that port would reach capacity in 10 years. So incredibly insane that essentially we'd be building a massive six-lane highway 
through our remnant bushland, through our communities, mm. increasing congestion, pollution and so forth, to a port that by the time they built it would be at potentially at capacity. So Yeah, sounds kind of like Yeah, sounds like a planning debacle and that it's like backwards type planning that just get getting that road funding and then creating a highway that doesn't really have a long-term purpose and destroys ecosystems. So is that, I mean, I know that the Barnett, he's had particularly a sort of development agenda. Um, does Is there any hope in stalling the project or a possible change of government in, is it an, a March election? Yeah, so I guess there's a few things. Like up until now, there was really, I guess, a push from the campaign to try and, I guess, convince Barnett to, and convince the state government to, to not push through this road, to, you know, essentially try and, you know, go back to their initial freight solutions, uh, mainly the outer harbour. But Barnett, uh, I guess, in his sort of arrogance and determination, uh, really just wants to push through the road. Uh, our understanding of their scheduled plan is they want to do all of the clearing before the election in March, which mm. is a real, you know, jerk move, essentially. Um, whether or not Barnett and the state government think they're going to get elected or not, who knows? They're rather unpopular, so there's, I guess, a, a general feeling that they just want to clear everything and make it almost uh, impossible for whatever government gets in mm. to not build the road. But there's, you know, huge community opposition to this. I mean, we've seen thousands and thousands of people protesting over the last year. You know, regularly on a weekday, there are hundreds of people down there uh, protesting. There's been um, you know, considerable stop work actions, people locking on, mass walk-ins, that kind of thing. And I guess the real hope now is to delay the clearing until the state election, at which point hopefully the ALP will get elected and similar to the situation that you had in Melbourne with the East-West Link, mm. uh, I guess what people here are really hoping for and pushing for is the ALP are elected and they cancel the contracts. What would potentially cost the state government, um, we're not entirely sure on the details, but, you know, a few million dollars, maybe even more than that. But when you can you compare that to $2 billion being spent on this, you know, wasteful road, it's not really, you know, much money at all, really. Mm. Um, I guess something else that's really worth pointing out it was revealed uh, just yesterday that the state government is spending $40,000 a day, at least $40,000 a day, on policing for the wow. protest. So, and, you know, there's been now, um, we're coming up on nearly three weeks of uh, demonstrations nearly every day during the clearing. Uh, the other day when some people uh, locked themselves onto a yard, the um, WA Limestone's yard, one of the companies that are responsible for the clearing of the bushland, and then more people were down at the actual site in um, in Kubalup. Uh There were, I think, over 70 police, and you know, including eight police horses, a police helicopter, and so forth. So it's just completely absurd the amount of yeah. resources that are being uh, being wasted on it. But yeah, and as I said, I guess the real, uh, I guess, push is to try and delay work, stop the clearing, and ensure that you know this goes to. A state election, and you know that's, I guess, a huge point that people are making is no one's had an opportunity to really, uh, you know, there's been no community consultation, there's been no democratic process, and people haven't had an opportunity to decide as to whether or not they want this toll road. Mm. Yeah, it's heartening to hear about the protests that are going on, and so who's getting down to those protests, and um, who's involved? And you mentioned a a stop work, um, so some workers actually striked or could you just elaborate on those a bit so so i guess um in terms of who's being involved one of the probably the most 
amazing things about this is it's really just you know local community members, uh, you know the kind of mums and dads sort of thing. You know, because the people, particularly those who live in the area, are going to be you know hugely impacted on this. Uh, you know, people are going to lose their houses, people are losing their bushland, their open mm. space, and so forth. So the people that have been down there have been really like you know a diverse range of people from you know like the the old nanas who are coming down and bringing um, cut up oranges to yeah. you know students and workers and you know people have been taking time off work all week to or these last few weeks to really get down there and voice their dissent. Um, so in terms of the stop work actions, I mean these are again being carried out by local community members. Uh, unfortunately, no, there's been no striking from workers or anything like that, but uh, there were a group of people who locked themselves onto the gates of one of the main yards. Mm. Uh, there were also a young woman locked herself onto a piece of drilling machinery, and there have been other attempts uh, by, by you know people here to essentially lock themselves on, or, or there's been also attempts of uh, mass sit-ins and these kind of uh, you know, tactics mm. to try and delay work and stop work. Uh, when the two women uh, locked themselves onto the gates, of WA Limestone, they were able to, um, well, they were locked on for something like seven and a half hours, and they were able to delay work for a few hours. But I guess one of the real difficulties is we have so many police, and, you know, it was almost like a scene out of some absurd dystopian film where, you know, there was the ROG, the Regional Operations Group, and unmarked SUVs, and all these other, other police literally escorting machinery, and, you know, you've got these scenes where reminiscent to what happened here at the James Price Point demonstration, mm. you have, you know, literally, you know, almost 100 police escorting machinery for, you know, private contractors into the site. And it's just, you know, the kind of um, escorts that dignitaries don't even get, it's, it's really quite yeah. crazy. So it's quite difficult for people to do much in terms of stop work actions. But still, despite all that, you know, people are so determined and so passionate to stop this, uh, you know, this toll road. Mm. that they are actually taking action and effectively delaying work. Yeah, it's those um, blatant moments when you see the state protecting the corporate interests and against the interests of local communities and people. But it sounds like uh, really fierce opposition. And at the same time, you know, when the community comes out together and you meet people in the neighbourhood you haven't met before and there's new alliances are forged and understanding. So that's, I guess, an exciting counterpoint. You're tuned in to Earth Matters and hearing a conversation between myself, Crunch and Ray from Rethink the Link in Perth. We're discussing the contested Row 8 Highway and have been hearing about the recent community protests and direct action against the clearing of land for the highway. Unfortunately, I couldn't reach a Noongar Wajak person to speak to for this show, but I asked Ray about traditional owner involvement in resisting the development on their country. Yeah, definitely. In terms of the traditional owner involvement, you know, from the very beginning, uh, Save Billy Wetlands, who is one of the major uh, campaign groups to protect the Billy Wetlands and the Cupola Bankshire Woodlands, have been working in conjunction with traditional owners of the area. Uh, and it's a very significant site. Um, you know, I don't know how much you listeners know about, uh, you know, the, the, the Wajak Noongar traditions here in, in Western mm. Australia. So it's a really, really significant area, mm. uh, particularly the Belia wetlands around Rose Swamp and North Lake, where the highway is going to go through. Um, you know, they don't even want anyone digging the area because of the how sacred this area is to the Wajak Noongar people. So, mm. um, yeah, that's incredibly, I guess, important for the, for the campaign and the fact that the government have completely disregarded the concerns of the, the Wajak Noongar people here. Um, and they've yeah, definitely been 
hugely involved. Uh, down there's a protectors camp that's been set up. There's been uh, discussions and talks by uh, you know local local mob down there about the significance, and they've been you know very much at the forefront of the campaign. Mm. And yeah, and it is you know just in terms of the, the ecological value of the area. As I said, it's you know some of the last remnant bushland and wetlands in the Fremantle area in the metro area. Uh, the, particularly the Banksia, Kublai Banksia woodlands, what um, unfortunately they've cut about a 20 metre wide way through the middle and we're unable to stop them doing that clearing. But you know, this woodlands is home to quenders, it's home to all these endemic species, including uh, migratory birds uh, such as the rainbow bee eater uh, mm. that you know, is currently actually nesting in the area, what's an endangered species. Unfortunately, because of our Biodiversity Act here in Western Australia, the minister can essentially. Um, make if there's any clearing or works they can get exemptions and so there is really really no uh consideration for endangered species um mm. but it's it, you know but it is a really really significant area ecologically and of, of course as i said before it's a very significant area for the uh, traditional owners uh good luck with it all and i guess listeners would definitely be keen to find out more or support in some way um where would you point people to to I guess, follow what's going on over the summer in the lead up to the election and do you have any uh, crowdfunding or, you know, ways that people could support? Yeah, definitely. So I guess the best thing to do is to get along to rethinkthelink.com.au. You can also get along to the Save Belia Wetlands website. I can't remember the exact address, but I'm sure if you just look up Save Belia Wetlands, you can get on to that. There have been uh, over 20 arrests so far, so there is... Mm. uh, like a wetland defenders fund uh, on what you can access via those websites or contact them for the details um, because, of course, you know, fines are going to be on, ongoing over the next few months in particular. Uh, there is also the, the various legal challenges that, are, that have taken place. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. so far, none of them have been successful, but they're ongoing. So I guess there's, you know, a huge need, first and foremost, in any of these campaigns for money, but yeah. uh, also just, uh, you know, solidarity, people, uh, you know, sharing and, and uh, posting support online, all that kind of thing um, would definitely go a long way. I mean, this is actually quite a similar campaign to what happened with the East Westland. Mm. You know, it's a toll road going through the heart of our community with, you know, majority of our people opposing it um, and, you know, in the lead up to a state election. So, you know, the similarities are quite strong. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely any, any people that can voice their, their support always going to help our solidarity and help us uh, beat this project. This is Earth Matters, and that was Raymond Grenfell filling us in on the controversial Row 8 highway development in Perth, one to keep an eye on for sure. And now we turn to a decidedly global issue, nuclear weapons. In light of incoming US President Donald Trump's posturing about nuclear weapons, the recent cooperation of many non-nuclear weapons states and NGOs to lead the way in initiating treaty negotiations to ban these weapons becomes all the more important. The brief background is that despite the stated aim of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which entered into force in 1970, the world is no closer to getting rid of its nuclear weapons. Therefore, in recent years, some international NGOs and non-nuclear weapons states have been leading the way in creating an alternate negotiating route, which began with consecutive conferences examining the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons. 
These conferences and tireless campaigning by organisations and people across the world helped bring the United Nations to a point in November 2016 wherein it voted on the suggestion to begin formal treaty negotiations for a treaty prohibiting and eliminating nuclear weapons. So we'll now hear an ICANN recording, and ICANN is the organisation called the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. And this recording is of the Ban Treaty Resolution being passed in the UN in November 2016 to the applause of a usually quiet and discreet General Assembly. Tim Wright, Asia-Pacific Director of ICANN, was there in New York, and we hear him speaking at the Black Mist White Rain Forum in Melbourne on November 16, 2016. The forum was held to coincide with the opening of the Black Miss White Rain Art Exhibition, which features artworks influenced by the spectre of nuclear weapons. The committee will now proceed to take action on draft resolution L41 entitled Taking Forward Multilateral Nuclear Disarmament Negotiations. The voting machine is unlocked. Delegations are kindly requested to indicate their votes on the board. Cheers for all resolutions, not only this one. Uh, it was a really exciting uh, moment. Uh, this is the first time that negotiations, multilateral dis- negotiations for nuclear disarmament, will take place in 20 years. Uh, it's quite extraordinary that um, this process, which is required by the Non Proliferation Treaty, uh, has been deadlocked for so long. Um, so these negotiations are due to begin. Uh, next March, just four months from now. Um, And it's been really great over the the past few years to work in close partnership with the Austrian government, the Mexican government, um, and other governments that are really committed to this effort, as well as the Red Cross, uh, to build this humanitarian-based initiative uh, aimed at stigmatising nuclear weapons and Uh, prohibiting them and ultimately eliminating them. Uh, So the resolution that was adopted with overwhelming support um, is to begin negotiations on, quote, a legally binding instrument to prohibit nuclear weapons, leading towards their total elimination. Uh, And these negotiations are scheduled to take place over four weeks um, next year. Uh, So the countries that um, voted in favour of it Uh, all non-nuclear weapon states. Uh, So you might be wondering, well, what's the point of this uh, whole initiative? How's this going to have any effect? Uh, Well, as Tillman explained, uh, the process for eliminating other 
weapons of mass destruction and certain conventional weapons uh, that have uh, catastrophic uh, humanitarian consequences has been first to prohibit them and to use that process of prohibition uh, in order to stigmatise and advance elimination. Uh, and of course, one of the uh, key conclusions of the Vienna Conference on the Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons uh, in December 2014 was that there is uh, this legal gap in the existing international framework governing nuclear weapons. Uh, so we hope that uh, by initiating this process, this negotiating process, uh, we can draw in uh, some of the countries that are currently um, hostile towards the idea of a ban on nuclear weapons. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do here in Australia to bring the Australian government on board. Uh, we met yesterday with representatives from the foreign ministry who say that they still uh, haven't decided whether they're going to participate in the negotiations, uh, even though they were among uh, the 38 countries uh, that voted against the resolution, it is possible uh, that they will participate. Uh, so we're working uh, with our 60 or so partner organisations in Australia to try to build the pressure on the government to participate and to participate constructively. Uh, and I would hope that um, with the history of nuclear testing in Australia, um, you know, with this with exhibitions like this one uh, and by presenting uh, the stories of the impact that nuclear testing has had here um, that we can make a compelling case for Australia to join uh, and to fully support the idea of a, a prohibition on nuclear weapons. Uh, and if you look at other countries affected by nuclear testing such as the Marshall Islands and Kazakhstan, they're very active uh, in advancing this idea of a ban um, and we often hear from uh, people uh, in those countries who have suffered the impacts of nuclear weapons but it's much rarer uh, at these kinds of international gatherings to hear from the survivors of uh, nuclear testing in our own country uh, and so one of the things that we're going to be working on next year is ensuring that the voices um, of the victims and survivors of nuclear testing in Australia are heard throughout the negotiations. Um, so this, uh, this resolution um, received the support of uh, almost all of the countries of Africa, almost all of the countries of Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, every single country in Southeast Asia voted in favour of it, uh, and almost all of the Pacific Island countries voted in favour of it. So in terms of our immediate region, uh, Australia is very much an outlier. Um, we uh, worked hard uh, ahead of the vote uh, to generate some parliamentary debate. Uh, this was raised in Senate estimates and we've had a number of Labor parliamentarians speak out in favour of it. Uh, Bill Shorten said that a Labor government would have voted in favour of the resolution. Um, I hope that that is indeed the case. Um, so even if we aren't successful in bringing the current Australian government on side, I hope that we can um, put enough pressure on the Labor opposition uh, to ensure that when they form government at some point in the future, uh, one of their priorities will be to sign and ratify this treaty. Um, they changed their policy platform last year to explicitly state that they support the negotiation of a treaty 
uh, banning nuclear weapons. Uh, but of course we know that politicians don't always stick to their promises uh, and so we need the kind of uh, public mobilisation that Bishop Huggins spoke about. Um, time is of the essence, uh, just four months to go before the start of negotiations. Um, I hope that we can uh, encourage people to attend, uh, to visit this ex exhibition, Black Mist Burnt Country. Um, I hope that we can reach out to our um, politicians, um, really put pressure on them to uh, speak about this in the parliament, to speak about it uh, to their constituents and to really commit to supporting uh, the negotiating process. Um, I hope that we can um, help um, to ensure that the voices of survivors are heard, as I said, um, and that this is a really successful um, process. Uh, I think there's no doubt that the negotiations are going to take place. I think there's very little doubt that the treaty will be adopted. Uh, but the big question mark is how successful will this treaty be? Uh, and that very much depends on our efforts to bring countries like Australia, um, countries like those in Europe that host nuclear weapons on their soil, uh, and ultimately the nuclear armed countries on board. Um, so there's a lot of work to do, very little time to do it. Um, so I'm optimistic, this is a huge um, breakthrough for us. This is really um, the most exciting development in this area in many years. Uh, and although there are many reasons for despair, uh, one might be the uh, recent uh, election of Donald Trump, um, but in many ways these kinds of developments also uh, add urgency to what we're doing. Uh, and I think that you know, in the past uh, we might have looked to countries like North Korea and thought, you know, well, they're, they're the problem because they've got a crazy leader. Well, there are other countries with crazy leaders. And the problem isn't uh, who is leading these countries, but the problem is the weapons themselves. Uh, and this exhibitions like this one and the humanitarian initiative in general have really um, shown that to be the case. Thanks. That was Tim Wright of ICANN giving an update on the global campaign to get a treaty banning nuclear weapons and to make sure that treaty is effective. An ambitious but essential campaign, you can find out more at ICANN's website, which is icanw.org.au. And also Tim spoke at the Black Mist White Rain Exhibition Forum, a powerful exhibition being shown around Australia. Find out more online. Earlier in the show, we heard from Raymond Grenfell about the Row 8 Highway project that is being fiercely protested by a diverse mix of people and community groups in Perth and surrounds. To support and find out more, you can look up rethinkthelink.com and savebeliawetlands.com, and that's B-E-E-L-I-A-R, wetlands. Thanks for listening. I'm Emma Crunch and this has been Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on the land of the Wurundjeri people in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to the show on 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters or contact us on Facebook. Thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association for their ongoing financial support and... Tune in next time for more social and environmental justice news.
Do you want to dig down into the dirt and find out what's going on in the activist community? Are you concerned about environmental and social justice? Friends of the Earth has a new radio show, Dirt Radio, Mondays, 10.30 on 3CR. Join us to dig the dirt. Global Intifada, bringing you current affairs through revolutionary and protest music from around the world. Every Thursday afternoon from 5 till 6 on 3CR. Because music is our bomb. Jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jail black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hand. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. 